Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We've got a good, a bad, and a bad that's also crazy, but I think it's mostly bad. Uh, Jim, let's get to our good martini, and this is something we've been calling for for a long time here. Uh, As this midterm election cycle has ebbed and flowed, we've been a little bit worried that the Republicans are basically counting only on voters to be thoroughly upset with Democrats, which I think a lot of them are, but it's always helpful to tell folks what they're voting for if they're voting for you. And that is what the House Republicans are about to do. And I think it's a good uh, idea. It's going to happen in Pennsylvania later this week. I think it's on Friday. But basically, Kevin McCarthy is putting together, you know, the 2022 version of the contract with America. Uh, One thing we should note is that Politico is reporting it's going to be short on specifics. Uh, They say the details will be worked on uh, in committee, assuming Republicans are able to take the majority. And uh, the story also doesn't uh, give you a a ton of information on the topics, but it does say it's going to touch on inflation, no surprise, border security, energy, crime, and China, among others, which I I certainly hope includes education. But, Jim, I think if they can focus on those things, stay away from the the distractions the Democrats and the media try to throw at them over the next uh, few weeks here, this is a good idea. It should have happened weeks ago, but it is happening, and I think it's going to be a positive for Republicans come November. Yeah, this is, and this is maybe we can call this a tentative good martini or an optimistic looking martini. Details to come. That list gives us a sense of the issue areas. And I think pretty much everybody would agree those are all important issues. And I concur, underlining in red, if you're not put, if you don't have education on that list of issues, I'd like to hear a really good explanation as to why it's not on that list. Um, you know, in terms of you don't need specific legislation, but I do want some sort of specific threshold. If you just say grow the economy or something like that or create jobs, eh, give, give me something a little more specific about what kind of legislation, what kind of ideas do you want to put into reality? Um, I'm, and by the way, the fact that we are now two, really two days away and we don't have we haven't had any leaks, there hasn't been much talk about what it's going to be. A little bit ominous. I guess we'll see on Friday. Also, Greg, I noticed this is called the commitment to America, not the contract with America. Now, um, when we t- get advertising and such, do we have contracts or do we have commitments? <laughs> Generally, want to have contracts. We let, like a contract. You can't back out of it, right? You back out of it. There's very specific consequences. Commitments. That's something you want to do, but you know, every once in a while there are extraordinary circumstances and you can't keep your commitment. Although I think obviously that's pretty important. It just kind of reminded me of when guys are like, "Well, I don't want to get her an engagement ring, but I got her a promise ring." <laughs> So you're promising to marry me? I'm promising you that I intend to marry. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's also a little bit like those. I have no intention to run for president at this time. But if you ask me tomorrow, <laughs> it's a little. I feel like there's a little bit of wiggle room in how they're unveiling this. But yeah, look, I, I think overall this is you know good for McCarthy, and it's not something we are saying a great all that often these days. We want to you know you need to give have a positive agenda. You need to give voters a sense of that they're. What are they getting if they vote for you? I mean, they're not going to stop the other guy. Maybe they don't like the other guy. Maybe by itself that's enough. But it's good to have, if you, if you win, you want to have a mandate. You want to be able to say, hey, you know what? The voters, we put it before, before them and they said, yes, we want this. Not just, eh, we don't like the other guys. 
you know so i think this is a good move obviously all important all important uh policy issues there let's see what the proposals are this is a cautiously optimistic good martini yeah, absolutely right. As far as the titles, Jim, I think Contract with America 2 could have worked. But, you know, sequels are never usually as good as the first ones. You know, the drop off even from Die Hard to, to Die Hard 2 or even catastrophic drop offs like Caddyshack to Caddyshack 2. Uh, you know, you got you got to be careful of the sequel because it usually doesn't live up to the hype. But hopefully in this case it does. But, yeah, they're going to need a few more specifics to really to really get voters to buy in. They're ready to fire the other people. They just need a reason uh, to get excited about you. Also, if you're going to make a promise, there's a part of me that's like, you know what, call it, if you're going to call it commitment to America, call it the ironclad commitment to, commitment to America, right? I mean, really, go out and say, if because you know, that was a big part of the contract with America. But also worth noting with the contract with America, it was all stuff that the House was going to do. It was not a guarantee that they'd get it passed into law, right? You know, Clinton was still president. But it was like, we will bring it to the floor and we will get a vote on these 10 things. But I like the number 10, 10 commandments, you know, this is the whole idea. 10 is always a good number there. Um, so we'll see how things shake out, but uh, hopefully it's a good good, good rollout coming at the end of the week. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly right. So hopefully uh, it gets a lot of attention. I'm sure the Democrats will have some sort of ominous slow motion footage of wave after wave of GOP House candidates signing it like they did back in 1994. But it led to plus 52 for the Republicans in 1994. So they can run all the ominous TV ads they want. Uh, the American people uh, have already rendered their verdict on Joe Biden on all of these issues, and they're all thumbs down. So uh, if Republicans are planning to move in a different direction, I think that's only going to help. All right, on to our first bad martini now, Jim. And uh, this is a story, obviously, that you have uh, taken a leading role on uh, bringing to the attention of not only your readers, but uh, the public in general. And that is on the Wuhan lab leak. How did COVID start? And now there's even more uh, evidence that uh, it's exactly what you said it was. There is now a sworn declaration uh, from someone named Andrew Huff, who was a vice president at uh, EcoHealth Alliance, a major funder of the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And he claims his organization developed, quote unquote, SARS-CoV-2 through gain of function research that makes viruses more dangerous. Quote, the process of developing SARS-CoV-2 was also described in detail in the proposal submitted to and ultimately funded by the National Institutes of Health the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, by EcoHealth Alliance with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and University of North Carolina listed as collaborators, according to the sworn affidavit of Andrew Huff, who is represented by the attorney Thomas Renz. Uh, so this is now uh, headed to, to Congress. We'll see where it goes from here. Most discussion of gain of function and any culpability by NIH has been dutifully buried by the media, Jim. So this might just be one more, you know, part of the story that that doesn't move a lot of needles here. But how much does this really change the story? Well, on the one hand, I welcome Mr. Huff coming forward. I am, I'm, you know, at the edge of my seat. Uh, I want to hear everything he has to say. I notice he has a book coming out uh, later in November. Um and by the way, for anybody wondering, is this, you know, just some nut? No, you know, Huff is not a nut. Uh, he, we can verify his work for EcoHealth Alliance. In fact, they tweeted out you know, kind of a profile of him back in 2014. Uh, their newsletter featured him back in uh, a couple of years back. And I believe he had at least eight papers published on global infectious disease surveillance systems and such. 
while he was there. So yeah, Huff definitely worked there. He was definitely a high-level official. He That part of his background we can verify, and it certainly seems like the kind of person who we should be listening to very carefully. That said, I do have a little bit of a sense of, um, where you been, man? <laughs> it's, it's September 2022. We've been asking these questions since very early in the spring of 2020. And uh, if, if you, you know, genuinely had evidence suggesting that SARS-CoV-2 you know, specifically and 100% matched something that was being worked on under an EcoHealth grant uh, to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, uh, along with the University of North Carolina listed as, as collaborating research, we, we could use this a lot earlier. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't hear all this debate going on. I can't believe this you didn't notice all this stuff. So clearly, um, uh, you know, good for coming forward. But like, what, what's been what's been holding back? We, we, this is all stuff we could have used to know quite some time ago. Um, now, I suppose maybe professional concerns. Maybe he feels like this was you know, or maybe he had doubts or or something like that. I'll be very interested in, in what he has to say. I don't know if it'll necessarily be a game changer in part because I think, one, there's a large section of the public who looks at it and says, well, yeah, um, you know, we have uh, not one but two institutions in that city that were researching and doing gain-of-function research on the kinds of coronaviruses found in bats. Gain-of-function research is when you make it more virulent, meaning more harmful to people, and or more contagious, meaning easier to catch. And then the outbreak starts just a little bit down the road from uh, both of these institutions. What are the odds that some other bat, some other animal brought in this kind of virus? And the other kind of complication that's been nagging at me since the beginning is we've had past animal-borne virus outbreaks. There was the original SARS back in 2003. There was uh, MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. There was H1N1. There was Zika. We, we've been through this, so we know, and all of them were pretty mild. If I, you know, God, God forbid you died from one of them, but by and large, they were not, um, they did not have the effect on the world that COVID-19 did. COVID-19 was very, very different because COVID-19 was so infectious compared to these. So the question is, man, how did it get so infectious? Did it just, it was sitting there in a pangolin or some other animal and it just developed and evolved in just the right way to be really good at infecting human beings? Or did it have some sort of helping hand somewhere along the way? Because that's what gain of function research does. The other thing I kind of, you know, we'll see how this shakes out. I'd be interested in reading his book. Um, sounds like he's been in communication with Senator Ron Johnson. I think one of the things I'm noticing here is that there are certain people who look at the funding for EcoHealth Alliance and all the work being going there, and they, they their instinct is that Fauci is the villain of the story. Now, Fauci got on my nerves, and I think you can safely say that Fauci was less than fully forthcoming about all of this stuff. I think it's also very clear EcoHealth Alliance was not always being very forthcoming with this stuff. I think you can say Fauci has unhelpfully poured cold water on the lab leak theory long before all the facts were in. And so I have my I have my beefs with Anthony Anthony Fauci on this front. I have my gripes with Anthony Fauci, but I don't see him as the primary villain of the story, because the primary villain of the story, in my eyes, is the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They, you know, it's, this is where it actually started. These were the folks who had the most direct knowledge of what was going on. These are the ones who I would presume would know. Hmm, this virus looks a heck of a lot like the stuff we were working on in the lab. 
and who chose not to tell the world, and who in fact only until three weeks into January said, oh yes, now we found evidence of human to human contact, even though doctors were catching it from their patients. So I don't want, and although I point out, Fauci's retiring, right? We can argue about Fauci's legacy. We can argue about uh, Fauci's leadership during the pandemic. I think there's a lot of very legitimate concerns about his decision-making and how he handled all this stuff. But I don't want everyone to kind of get sucked into a get Fauci party and overlook the consequences and the decisions of and the, the, ne the necessity, I'd argue, of holding the Chinese Communist Party available, uh, accountable. They're really the ones who had the most to do with this. And there's an intri intriguing theory I've had floated to me, the idea that you might, why, why would you know the United States government ever fund joint research on virus and stuff with the Chinese government? Because if you're funding it, you may have a better way of knowing what they're doing. In other words, the argument that this was kind of a backdoor effort at intelligence gathering by saying, hey, let's work together on this. And we'd be able to peek behind the door, so to speak, and have a better sense of what the Chinese are doing. We can have a debate about whether that was a good idea. Actually, I think in looking retrospect, I think it was a bad idea. Uh, I think we can you know, have a great debate about whether scientific research with China is really feasible in light of the divergence between the two countries in the last couple of years. But I look at this and I was like, okay, look, hold Fauci accountable. Let's look at every aspect of the funding of EcoHealth Alliance. Let's be open to the possibility that EcoHealth Alliance wasn't being honest with uh, uh, Health and Human Services either. But let's not get, you know, you say, ah, well, we're never getting answers out of China. Let's not worry about that. I think we still need to hold China accountable. And I think it'll be a long time before they are truly held, if ever, if they are before they are truly held accountable for the consequences of their actions. No, I think that's right. China's the main villain here. Uh, Fauci's problem is that every time it was convenient for him, he lied to us. From masks from the get-go to... <laughs> Other than that, yeah. <laughs> to, to what protests you could go to. He stayed quiet on that, perhaps more than lying on that. Uh, he was still talking about uh, if you get the shot, you're not going to get COVID long after people were starting to get it and you know gain a function. Uh, lab leak, every time it was convenient for him to lie, he, he, he just shredded his credibility. And in this day and age, you're not going to get away with that. He's kind of got an old school mentality that somehow the media would help him bury it, which it tried to. But there's just too many information streams out there, and uh, it, it's coming to light. Uh, also very disappointed to see uh, you know, the University of North Carolina connected here. But I have to say, Jim, I I'm still not cheering for Duke. All right, on to our final bad slash crazy martini now. And just when you thought that maybe, maybe a sliver of hope that the Russians, after getting beaten back really badly in this uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, might just decide to figure out how to settle for peace, maybe figure out a way to let some of those disputed, well, not really disputed, they're Ukrainian, but they're majority Russian sympathizer provinces, uh, maybe vote uh, and see how that works out for them. But no, they're calling up 300,000 reservists, uh, which makes it uh, seem quite ominous. And it is because there's going to be a lot of fighting and it's going to be very ugly and it's going to be bloody and lives are going to be lost. But as you pointed out to me, uh, Jim, Mark Hurtling, who is uh, a retired uh, general, I think he's been on CNN and a bunch of other places, saying, if you thought the Russian regulars sucked, wait till you see the reservists. So even though they're throwing 300,000 out there, they're probably going to be terrible, but the death and the destruction is, is going to be brutal. Yeah. So first of all, the fact the Ukrainian offensive appeared to be gaining significantly over the last few weeks kind of made, oh okay this is good you know one this is good to see russia 
their aggression being punished and rebuked and them losing ground. And maybe if it gets bad enough, Russia will say, someone in Russia, either Putin or somebody around him will say, all right, this is turning into a disaster. This is not, you know, uh, building us to a great empire again. We're being embarrassed on the world stage. It's time to stop. And that somebody would recognize this. My colleague, Michael Brendan Doherty, who he and I, you know, just safely summarize, he and I do not see foreign policy eye to eye. Um, but he also makes good and interesting points periodically. Actually, I say pretty regularly. And he pointed out that we have not, you know, usually during a conflict, there are periodic back channel communications about everything from prisoner exchanges to ultimately an end to the conflict, right? Temporary ceasefires, things like that. It certainly seems like there has not been much between Ukraine and Russia, or if they have, they've been very brief and very intermittent during this conflict. And also, it seems like the contact between the United States government and the Russian government, outside of maybe military to military contact, uh, has been very little um, over the last, really, if you go back to February, which is probably not good, uh, which is probably not increasing the likelihood of an end to the conflict. Certainly, we're kind of guessing at how Russia sees things and, and these kind of, you know, even if they're back-channel communications can sometimes give you some sense of, all right, how does this conflict and how does the world look through Moscow's eyes or through Putin's eyes? And this is this move kind of indicates like, well, okay, we're doing badly, but you know what? We're just going to escalate. We're just going to find more guys. We're going to feed them into the meat grinder, which, by the way, is not good for Russia. You know, as much as we're angry at their regime, these folks getting dragged to the front are not really uh, necessarily our enemy. They clearly don't want to be there. And kind of a recognition that this is, you know, Putin's attitude is, okay, I can't win right now. Maybe if I freeze Europe during a cold winter, maybe by spring they'll stop supporting the Ukrainians and maybe then I can win. So in other words, it certainly seems like we're going to see a second year of the uh, Russian war in Ukraine. Not good news. And, uh, you know, I can't imagine this is going to make a huge impact helping the Russians at the front. It's probably just going to add up to Russian casualties. I suppose that could lead to some sort of pressure on Putin's regime. But honestly, it does not feel like there's been any serious or substantive, you know, uh, effort to remove him from power or challenge his power. So we'll see how things shake out. But uh, it certainly seems like an ominous indicator that nope, nope, even though the Ukrainians seem to be on the uh, on the advance, this war is going to drag on for some considerable amount of time. Yeah, it's ugly. It's ugly. And we're already talking about 12 billion more, I think, is the amount that they're talking about in additional aid to Ukraine. Um, and we'll find out where it goes. I'm sure there'll be plenty of talk about this. At the UN this week, Jim, General Assembly week. I know that's a very exciting time for you and the rest of us. Not really. Hey, whenever there's a crisis, the UN is there holding a study. <laughs> and blaming Israel, even if Israel's not involved. Yeah. <laughs> that's how that works. All right, Jim, on that note, have a great day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well, please. We'd love to have them listening as well. Thank you for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Don't forget to go out and buy Jim's brand new novel, Gathering Five Storms, as well as the accompanying short story, Saving the Devil. Have a great Wednesday, and please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. 
when it comes to Larry David, when it comes to Zoe Sunny, when it comes to South Park, I think because they established their audiences before people went crazy, uh, they yeah. were able to weather it a little bit more easily because people had already sort of decided, hey, these guys are good. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. 